News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Hugs and pints. That is the theme in the United Kingdom as the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, has now given the green light to move forward and loosen things up after months and months of really strict restrictions that they have had there. So essentially, they're moving into the next phase of this easing. It's it's a four-step plan. Uh, And now they had originally announced the plan back in February, but they're now giving the go-ahead to move on to the next step. So essentially, the Prime Minister is saying they're going to allow families and close friends to make their own choices when it comes to social contact. But one thing they are definitely saying in the UK is, don't just throw caution to the wind and start acting like everything is completely back to normal when it's not. They said social distancing must remain in workplaces, in shops, and in restaurants. So under step three, from May the 17th, people are going to be allowed to meet up indoors for the first time in months. It seems like it's something that we totally and completely took for granted right before all of this happened. But now this idea of, oh my goodness, we can meet up indoors. Uh, they can meet up in groups of up to six people or two full households together. Wow. That means you can, this is in the UK you're talking about, not here, right? So they can actually gather indoors of up with groups of up to six people. Also, they're going to start allowing indoor dining. And again, like, you know, BC was very lucky for a very long time with this, where we had indoor dining for months and months and months when other jurisdictions absolutely did not. So they're actually now moving forward to say pubs, cafes, and restaurants will be able to host customers indoors. And again, though, first time in months, but they're still going to have some certain rules in place. But here's a big one. Other indoor entertainment venues like cinemas and sports venues are going to be able to reopen too. So that's a big deal. Uh, Being able to go to the movie theater, that's like the one thing on my list that I really do miss is going to see the occasional movie. Uh, Here's the thing. This only, the specific rules that Boris Johnson was laying out apply to England only because the semi-autonomous governments of Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales are going to set out their own rules, but they are all giving the okay now to move forward with that. They had a really rough time in the UK when it came to getting COVID under control. They really struggled with this. They had the fifth highest death toll in the world. They had more than 127,000 fatalities as a result of COVID-19. Meanwhile, though, they've done a heck of a job when it comes to getting people vaccinated. And again, they are mainly using the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. It is manufactured there in the UK. They have large, really easy access to a large supply of that. Two thirds of all adults in the United Kingdom have now had a first vaccine and one third have had both doses and they are moving ahead with getting all of that done. So for them, 
there is a lot of promise at this point with the fact that they are moving forward with this. Uh, but clearly, vaccination has been a key to that, to getting under, getting it all under control there. And they're moving forward with getting people their second doses. So how far off are we from that? I know that's the big question. So I can't reiterate this enough, is that if you are 18 plus uh, in the uh, areas of Fraser Health and Vancouver Coastal Health, make sure you are registered online because there's a lot of hotspot neighborhoods, a couple of dozen of them in the two health authorities that are now making it eligible for people 18 plus to get vaccinated. And that will make a huge difference. We have quite a bit of supply too. Last week, this week, lots of vaccine, Pfizer and Moderna arriving in BC. So are we close to getting there to where the UK is? Uh, certainly very hopeful, but in the UK, they are really quite happy today uh, with the idea that they can hug a friend, you know, up to six people indoors, have a gathering, and that they can go have a pint in a pub, which we all know what a big deal that is there, right? And they haven't been able to do that. So they are moving forward. Is that what the future looks like for us? As we heard from Richard Zussman, we are going to be finding out this week, hopefully, what BC's plan is for reopening. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, producer Greg Schott and I often debate that song right there. I've said that I've heard that that's the most irritating song in pop history. He claims he loves it. Let's find out what Raji Sohal thinks. Raji, do you like that song? (laughs) Well, I may have done a number of really quick stretches to it right now when it came on. It obviously pumps you up. But at the same time, I find it irritating. It's kind of like, you know, how we were talking about the latest trends in fashion before about like acid wash jeans and how they are both ugly and cool at the same time. Yes. That's what this song is. (laughs) It is. If you Google it, one of the first things that comes up says, why is this song so hated? Why is this the worst song? Is we built this city a good song? Like that's pretty much what comes up on Google. I don't know why. I don't know why. But even GQ magazine said an oral, they have an article that says an oral history of we built the city, the worst song of all time. So I'm just saying I'm not alone. In thinking we could that. do worse. Yeah, I'm we could sure do worse. There are other songs. <laughs> pretty much anything that plays in an arena for me is a no. Oh, how dare you? That is not true. The arena <laughs> songs are the arena rock is the greatest. I love Queen, but We Will Rock You is their worst song. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What? How? What Come about on. the final countdown? Final countdown, Simi. What? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Raji, we have this is the thing that bonds the one thing that does bond me and Greg is that we do have a very similar taste in music. And okay. I see we're just gonna have to put you on the outside of that category. <laughs> There's always got to be an outlier, right? <laughs> You're the outlier on that one. <laughs> uh, let's talk about what's going on out there. Did you see this list now of neighborhoods 18 plus that people can register 18 plus can get the vaccine? Oh, yeah, it's happening. I even noticed this uh, Mother's Day, how many people were posting on social media that they were feeling great and safe to meet with mom because mom was vaccinated maybe twice and they got the first jab themselves. So it's really like getting jabbed now is is the new hi there. (laughs) (laughs) What was that? Come come close to me. (laughs) Um, And uh, I think soon we're going to see the opposite where um, or not the opposite, but the other side of that, which is uh, people who have vaccine hesitancy missing out loads. Well, maybe not on. when they see what's going on. And, you know, that's the whole vaccine passport issue too, right? But uh, let me just yes. very quickly run through some of these neighborhoods. For instance, if you live in Fraser Health and you are 18 plus, 
We're talking Abbotsford Rural, Burnaby, Southeast and Southwest, Central Abbotsford, Cloverdale, Fleetwood, Guilford, North Delta, Panorama. Like there's a long list of neighborhoods in Fraser Health that are considered hotspots that if you're 18 plus, they want you to go get your appointment for your vaccine now, which is great. And even in Vancouver Coastal Health, uh, Kensington, Killarney, Squamish, Sunset, Victoria Fraser View, Cedar Cottage, you know, Hastings Sunrise. There's a lot of neighborhoods on this list. It's a lot of people. Yeah, it's a lot of people. People need to just get registered, get vaccinated, especially as we see now these uh, major hotspots in the world uh, where, you know, they don't even have access and the kind of privilege that we have here that we can, you know, even compare different vaccines. It's we're so lucky to be here. I read something uh, the other day that said, look, when it comes to vaccines, stop comparing luxury brands. Stop so holding true. up a Chanel bag and a Gucci bag and going, hmm, which one do I want? Just take one. Take what is available. And at this point with uh, it being uh, opened up in all the regions practically now, it's uh, and with younger ages, it, there's no excuse. we got to get this done. Absolutely true. Now, Roger, I was asking this a couple minutes ago. I'm going to ask you this question. Is like, What is really high up on your list? Like, What is the number one thing that you miss that you can't wait to do again when things get back to a more normal situation? Concerts, concerts, live music. Oh. I have been watching so many old music videos of, um, you know, from the 80s and 90s, and I've been counting down the days that I will get to see live music again. I used to go to four or five shows a week. It was a priority for me to get out there. I'm sorry, did you say a week or did you mean like a year? <laughs> Uh, a week, Simi. I love music. What? I love music. And one of my favorite things about music is to see it live, is to share that experience with other people. And I cannot wait. I cannot wait to go to a music festival. I can't wait to get to, you know, a small pub and just see a band that I like. Huh, okay. And I, I don't think I'll take it for granted again. So let me ask you then, what is your, what is the best act that you have ever seen? Like, what's your favorite concert? Well, currently, I'm on a campaign to brainwash my my toddlers to like the kind of music that I like. Mm. And I feel Parent like propaganda. I, can, I like yes, that. Yes. And if I can successfully do that, then I'm made. They'll go to concerts with me. And so lately, I've been playing a lot of Blur for them. Do you remember Blur? British pop band? No, Late I 90s, don't. early 2000s? No? Okay. <laughs> well, I love them and I've seen them 14 times. I'm sorry, 14 times? Yeah, you're you're really getting to know me this uh, this morning, hey Simi. Yes, I, I'm crazy for music, and um, I am trying to get them hooked on Blur, and it's working so far. So I already told them, and they just kind of, you know, nodded haphazardly. I said, "Look, if they're playing next year, we are going, no matter where it is. I'm going to take you kids with me." Okay, here, I looked up Blur while you were talking there, and I understand now. You know, when your kids are first born, you know, there's that gap where you don't know anything about what's going on in pop culture and music, TV, movies, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, their they, first year for sure. Yeah, they fall into that gap for me. That's when my kids were really little. So <laughs> so that's why I don't, I don't, I'm not terribly familiar with Blur. What? So that's the greatest concert you ever went to was a Blur concert? Yeah, I went with my sisters. I have three older sisters. And I went to the gig with my sisters and we just had the time of our lives drinking nothing but water, screaming our heads yeah, off. Sure, dancing, you were drinking like nothing maniacs. but water. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of those kids who uh, you know, snuck into clubs too young using fake ID, but I I always uh, followed the rest of the rules. 
and um, I just cannot wait to see some live music. But I heard you say that you can't wait to get to the theater. And yeah. I'm not the same. Oh, see, I love seeing movies. Like I love watching movies. I, that's just like, I've always loved that. And not being able to go to the big screen. Like I grew up a James Bond fan because my dad was a huge James Bond fan. So I've like seen every movie. We've always gone to the movie theater to see them. And I'm so waiting to see this last Daniel Craig, James Bond movie. And I'm just like waiting, waiting, waiting. And I want to go and see it. And that's what I'm looking forward to. Oh, and to see it on the big screen would be so special. See, I love going to movies, but I think that's something that the pandemic changed for me. And now I have come to really, really appreciate the comfort of my couch, uh, which I wouldn't have said before the pandemic. So interesting. Yeah, I think it'll be hard for me to shake the idea of sitting, you know, in the seat where other people have sat. And it's going to take us all a little bit of time, let's face it, to adjust to, you know, reacclimatizing ourselves to germs outside right well yeah we have to get used to go it's going to be a little weird walking around right afterwards i think and having people in close proximity but i'm going to ask people this question so what is the one thing that you really are looking forward to doing again bc getting our post-pandemic plan later this week raji says for her it's concerts for me it's going to the movies email me simmy at cknw.com thanks for that raji thanks Simi. this is mornings with simmy People want something to change. We are tired of hearing about the stories of gang violence on our streets. Uh, the latest scary situation at Vancouver International Airport, I think, really hit home. When we were talking to Kim Boland yesterday, crime reporter from the Vancouver Sun, you know, she really summed it up, I thought, when she said, we were lucky that we were in a pandemic when that happened, because if we hadn't been, it had been regular times. Think of how busy the airport would have been. It could have been an absolute disaster. Instead, it was a very scary situation. So how do we fight back? How do we do something about this? Well, BC Solicitor General Mike Farnworth is meeting with different law enforcement officers, high ups today to talk about that situation. He's kind of implied that more resources could soon be coming, but he says, you know, we have a lot of tools to deal with this, but what more can we do? What do other jurisdictions do to deal with situations like this? Well, joining us now once again is Karen McConnell, who's a former gang officer and current lecturer at SFU and KPU in organized crime. Karen, and thanks for being back with us. Thank you, Simi. What did you think of this latest incident? Is this unprecedented, or do you think is it part of a pattern? Well, you know, I suggested in my uh, in my doctoral thesis that when we talk about um, unprecedented, when we, we talk about unprecedented and unparalleled, um, we really have to consider the fact that this is not the case. And uh, we've had gang violence in British Columbia pretty much since we began British Columbia, and, and we can track through it. You know, 1950s, we had a running gun battle in the 1100 block of Gramble Street between the Alma Dukes and the Victoria Park gang, right? So it's, it's not unparalleled or unprecedented. Now, with that said, I mean, I've never heard anywhere in the world of a gang shooting in an international airport. And so this is, of course, very, very concerning to, to everybody. What can we or what, like, what do other jurisdictions do to deal with gang activity? You think of cities like Los Angeles and, I mean, Seattle, they have gang problems. How do they deal with it? Well, I think we have to be careful to look to the United States for examples of success because their gang situation is so much different than ours. 
and I always caution when we look to transport um, solutions from these other areas because of the fact that uh, it is so different. I mean, in my research, I spent time in uh, South Central Los Angeles, Chicago, uh, New Orleans, Detroit, uh, Las Vegas, and London, England, Toronto. Um, and the reality of the situation is that in these areas, you have gangs that are predominantly geographically based. They are usually inner city, almost often, almost always inner city, almost often uh, one ethnic or two ethnic groups. Uh, and it is absolute abject poverty in these communities. And so the young people in these communities often lack legitimate opportunities to, to, to success. Um, you know, if you, if you live in Chicago and you live on the, uh, on the west side of Chicago, you live in Garfield Park, and you go apply to McDonald's on Michigan Avenue and you put your, postal, your zip code down that you live in that neighborhood, you may not get a call back, right? So it's a much different thing. Um, the other issue that we have is that we in Canada generally do not support the same kinds of sentencing practices that exist in the United States. And so, you know, somebody might get, you know, a, a, a 60 year sentence in the United States. We don't, we don't tend to give those kinds of sentences out for uh, anything. So what you're saying is that our, just the makeup of gangs here is very different than what we see in the United States because these are areas that are not in poverty, right? Some of these people come from good families uh, that make a decent amount of money. It's not that, that the, that's the problem. No, and, and you know, the thing is that we always talk about in this region, which is much different than in other regions, is that we have this balance of kids that do come from traditional at-risk homes with all the typical criminal genetic factors that we see in other places, you know, poverty, substance abuse, uh, right. you know, a variety, a variety of all those things that we know as criminologists can lead to poor decision-making. Um, but we also have kids in this region that, that come from what we call non-traditional at-risk homes, which from, at least from the outside, looking in, we have parents that are um, engaged uh, prosperous, uh, sometimes even wealthy, um, and uh, their kids are choosing this life. And I had a young gang member in South Central Los Angeles say to me, people where your kids were from choose this life? I said, yeah. And they, they had a, a, a strong reaction to that that I can't say on the radio um, because they don't choose the life in South Central Los Angeles. The life chooses them. In certain places, you can't go to school unless you claim a set. We don't have anywhere like that. And the other part about our gangs, which is really different and makes it much more challenging for the police, is that when you're in South Central Los Angeles, you can go to the corner of walk and don't walk, and you're going to find a gang that has been there for generations. And when you see gang members from another gang there, right, you're going to know that there's going to be a problem. Whereas police here, it's not geographically based. Right. Uh, it's it's market-based. It's drug line-based. But just that, what you just said there, I can see why it makes it so much more difficult to try to get people out of gangs in BC because they are choosing this lifestyle as opposed to being forced into this lifestyle. 
Well, uh, yes and no. Yes and no. I think we could do, I think we have a lot of good programs that are helping. Uh, so we talk about the on-ramps and off-ramps of gang life, right? So we have a lot of good programs that are reducing the kids that are into the on-ramps, right? Um, and there's lots of those programs, Safer Schools Together, GRIP, um, Her Time, Yo Bro, CFSU Exit Gang Life, and Gang Life, Project Lavender, uh, Shattering the Image. They're, they're all great programs, right? And we are reducing the kids that are going onto those off-ramps, uh, onto the on-ramps. I mean, our issue, I think, which is the biggest challenge for us, is how do we get the kids that are in to the off-ramps? And, uh, and I think right now one of the challenges that we're facing in the region is that there appears to be, to these, uh, to these young people engaged in this, minimal consequences to their actions. And so... Until we figure out a way to change that, we are going to cha- we are going to continue to struggle with with the kids that are already in getting them out. I mean, that's why the pressure is on, right? After what happened at the airport, because if you can fire at a police officer in a very public area like that, and then think that you're going to get away with it, what? How do you combat that? I don't know, and I think the one thing that I have to say uh, is that. I'm a little frustrated with some of the comments that are being made on Twitter. I mean, think of the bravery of those officers responding to that scene in the first place and then to continue to chase after somebody who's firing shots at you with all of the liability attached to uh, police high vehicle pursuits. And you're making these decisions in, in literally nanoseconds. And I think the Richard RCMP should be commended for their response to this and not criticized. What do you think we can be doing differently, though? In terms of policing, is there anything you can think of that we've got to start doing? Well, this isn't a popular sentiment, but I think we have to look at our sentencing practices. Uh, One of the people that is involved in this conflict uh, not that long ago was involved in a high-speed pursuit with the police, was found with a loaded handgun, and they received a one-year sentence in prison. Um, I, I, I believe that if we had longer sentences for possession of illegal handguns that that would make people think about having them in their cars and readily accessible um i think that's one thing i think we have to continue to support uh the the variety of programs that prevent kids from the on-ramps of gangs and we have to consider the fact that those programs need to be funded for longer than an election cycle because it takes time. You're not going to see the results of these things in three, four years. It's going to be 10-year projects, and that's not always popular. That is very true. Listen, Karen, thanks so much for your time again. No worries. You take care. You too. That's Karen McConnell, his former gang officer, current lecturer at Simon Fraser University in Kwantlen Polytechnic and Organized Crime, talking about how different the gang situation is in Metro Vancouver and in BC versus other jurisdictions, uh, which is very interesting to know. And what is going to change? What are police going to do differently? This is Mornings with Simi. You know, six weeks ago, it really looked like BC was in trouble. You had COVID-19 raging, and in particular, variants were a huge concern. And we know that Whistler became a hot spot uh, because of the P1 variant. That's the one that is believed to have originated in Brazil. And yet, now, 
numbers are going down, people feeling a little bit better, the things that you're doing are working. In fact, the Wall Street Journal had an article yesterday giving BC praise, saying that British Columbia has done what other jurisdictions have struggled to do, potentially get a hold of the P1 variant. One of the people they talked to was Dr. Sarah Otto, professor and mathematical biologist at the University of British Columbia, and she joins us now. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Cindy. Do you think BC has gotten a hold of the P1 variant? It's looking like it. The numbers are going down, and they're going down particularly steeply in the Vancouver Coastal Health, which is where P1 um, really had a stronghold. In mid-April, about two-thirds of the cases in Vancouver Coastal were P1, and we had upwards of 400. I think at one time it was nearly 450 cases, and now we're down to below 150 cases in Vancouver Coastal. So how did we do it? What are we doing that is so different? Well, you know, it's still touch and go. I wouldn't. I, I, this virus um, does have a way of turning corners on us, but I, I think it's a combination of the restrictions, especially on indoor restaurants, and um, everybody just being more cautious, knowing that the hospitals were filling up. Um, but then also vaccinating in hotspot places. And um, P one was really raging in Whistler, so the campaign to um, vaccinate the whole city very quickly, I think also helped turn the corner. So that was a change, right, for us, because we had really been committed to that age-based vaccine rollout. But then all of a sudden, it seems like we were we were saying, okay, we're going to go into the hotspots and do this. Yeah. And I think that has been a really effective um, campaign for BC, continuing the age-based, but really spending time in those sectors um, uh, where that are hardest hit. And we're also seeing um, more... Um, prioritization for people that are younger, but that have jobs that, like in grocery stores or in restaurants to get them protected quickly. So is there one thing that worked, do you think, or is working here in BC, or is it a multi-pronged approach? Yeah, it's a multi-pronged approach, I'm sure. The vaccine, when the whole city of Whistler got vaccinated, it's a little late to explain when the case numbers in Vancouver Coastal went down. It's just like a, a couple of weeks. Um, and, uh, but, so I think it was a part of it, but um, I suspect that the, the closure of Whistler and the restrictions on indoor dining meant, uh, I don't know exactly where those cases were um, really spreading quickly, but it, it could have been in such an um, indoor dining in Whistler. And so by closing both of them, yeah. that just prevented B1 from continuing to spread. Right. But we don't know. I, I think the, the BCCDC probably has data on exactly the contact tracing um, and where the, the biggest risks were, but the, that we don't have. Right. That Again, that goes to the information, right, that people have been asking yeah. for. Now, when you saw that information finally come out from the BCCDC, were you surprised or you thought, oh, okay, they do have all this information? No, the, the information um, on the variants is still um, wasn't in the report. So, for example, um, we don't have the genomes contributed publicly in the database that the global database where everybody's putting their genomes it's still the case that bc hasn't been contributing our genomes so we only have 11 genomes submitted since um 2021 so all of these cases for p1 to know to to track where they are where they've gone who they're related to we don't have that data in the genomic databases 
Now, why wouldn't we be doing that? Because we, we were known as this kind of North American hotspot for the P1 variant. I know, and, and we are this amazing genomic powerhouse. We probably um, genomically sequenced almost more per case than anybody else. So, But it's a matter of getting those genomes up and sh- um, and sharing them with the world. And I do think that that's important to do because that, you know, that allows us um, to collect data from different um, jurisdictions. Sometimes there might not be a strong enough signal within one province or even within two provinces, but if you collect these, you know, like what's happening at P1 across the world, then that's where you get the best picture of what's really happening. Right. I noticed that this Wall Street Journal article also said that it was kind of the combination of things that BC did, right? You talked about restrictions, right. um, you know, they've done, you know, re- reducing access to people, indoor dining, all of that kind of thing. But if you pick the one thing, do you think it was the vaccinating and hot spots that really did make the difference? I think it's probably the indoor dining closures, but um, uh, maybe it's like 50-50. I don't know. Um, well, time will tell. I think well, that story will come out. Well, why do you think the indoor dining closures? So I think these new um, variants are just that much more transmissible. I think that they, the virus is better able to get into our body um, and can maintain, stay in the air in smaller particles and still infect the person. So I, I think that's why we're seeing more higher transmission rates. So things that were, we could do with the old variants may, may be just a little bit more dangerous with the new variants. So that's, that's what I suspect is going on. Um, and I also know, well, the, the province has been very clear that they are going to close, um, make a priority of closing those places where they're seeing the highest transmissions. So is that what we have to do? Like, is this going to be, do you think, in the next six months, just a constant examination of where we might see a few cases and then shutting that place down? You know, I think that's a good strategy for us to play. As we get more and more vaccines, I got my vaccine yesterday. I'm so happy. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, yeah. That, you know, that, I, that just is going to provide a huge um, uh, protection. So we'll be able to open up restaurants, um, hopefully, in the next month. Um, again, you know, but I think that that we're going to have to continue to monitor where cases aren't going down and and do restrictions and additional campaigns. But the campaign we're in right now is really to vaccinate as many people as possible. Um, and you know, just for some numbers across Canada, people in their twenties and thirties have um, about a thirty percent chance of saying they're not going to get vaccinated, and we really, really have to turn that number around. I think it's partly because they don't, they know that the risk to themselves isn't that high, um, and and vaccinations are partly to protect yourself, but really in this case, it's to protect the people around you, protect the virus from jumping from person to person to person, so we can open up the bars and the restaurants and the nightclubs and things again. That's incentive right there. Uh, thank you so much for yeah. joining us this morning. Thank you. That's Dr. Sarah Otto, professor and mathematical biologist at the University of British Columbia. She also spoke in a recent Wall Street Journal article, which I found really interesting, actually, and because it, it was all about British Columbia. And the Wall Street Journal is a, like a huge paper. But this article really singled out BC for taking a look at the numbers here and saying that, you know, whereas we were the hotspot in North America, if not even the wider world, of the P1 variant, 
that over the last six weeks with a number of different measures, BC looks like at this point, I don't want to, you know, say it definitively, but it looks like BC has managed to get a hold of this variant and bring those numbers down. And they're saying that it was a combination of things that happened. You heard Dr. Otto, she thinks it was the difference was uh, shutting down indoor dining because these variants are so much more contagious than previous versions of the the virus. Uh, Also, vaccinating hotspots made a huge, huge difference. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, there are a lot of reasons why people love spending time out in the wilderness or the great outdoors or just sitting and maybe taking in nature, admiring something that nature has to offer. Maybe it's just a really great big tree and you can be impressed by that. Well, The Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest is a new book. It's a memoir, actually, by Dr. Suzanne Simard. It's making a lot of international waves. And our Raji Sohal had a chance to talk to the famous ecologist. Raji, thanks for being back with us. Hi, Simi. Yeah, Suzanne Simard uh, actually lives in Nelson, BC, and she's a university professor in ecology at UBC. She spent decades studying trees, and through some of her groundbreaking research in her career, she's shown that trees communicate with each other in pretty astonishing ways. A tree's neighbor, for example, completely impacts the health of another tree. Depending on who the neighbor is, what, what you know, the features of that neighbor, like how fast they grow, how big their crowns are, whether they can fix nitrogen, how deep their roots grow, you know, where they're accessing pools of water and resources, how, you know, so the neighbors and their ability to access all this stuff uh, shapes how that individual tree that's, you know, in that neighborhood grows as well. So they, they're very perceptive of, you know, the shade that a neighbor is casting, whether the, it's a stressed neighbor, um, you know, whether it's the same species, whether it's related to that species, they can perceive all that information or all that stuff. And then it affects how they grow as well. Um, And of course, what my work also shows is they actually do connect uh, below ground through these webs of fungi that they all share, that they share. Um, And then their conversations or their interactions are much more, you know, intimate and, and, and this sharing of information and resources really it's it's it helps shape the competitive interactions as well like they all go together right so raji is she saying that the trees are like communicating with each other like talking to each other yes pretty much she describes it as a neighborhood she says one tree's behavior impacts the whole block and their root systems are highly sophisticated networks to share nutrients and she discovered that carbon moves back and forth between trees. That was a very uh, major discovery for her. And they do things like warn of danger and help their own offspring, as she calls it, get off to a good start in life. But what's really cool is her extensive research shows that a tree can change its course forward, given all the years of experience it's already gone through. So trees are highly adaptive. That sounds so cool. Now, we're, we're looking at this and being like, wow, that sounds amazing. But Dr. Simard, she's faced some backlash throughout her career, hasn't she? Yeah, and a lot of controversy over this book, too. She's been dismissed and mocked even 
by forestry officials throughout her career for what they say is anthropomorphizing forests, basically treating forests like they are people. Even using this word, the mother tree, is really evocative. But she's not mocked so much anymore now that uh, we we balance it with the fact that we are in the middle of a, a climate crisis. So she says she uses language deliberately so that people can start to see nature as important, just as important, in fact, as humans. And her reason for doing so is plain to see. I'm trying to communicate these concepts so that everybody understands them. If I were to talk in the language of a scientist and I said, for example, the, the network in the forest, um, you know, it is actually a neural network, right? It is a biological neural network. It has all those patterns. What in neural network and graph theory, you would call those old trees hub trees um, and, the, and the mycorrhizal networks, the links between the hubs. Well, if I were to talk to you about hub trees and links, you probably would fall asleep. Um, if I talk about, you know, the role of mother trees, which we found that these hub trees actually nurture, you know, the, the regeneration, they actually help regeneration and survival, then suddenly people can understand that because we we all have a mother, we all know that they're essential in our bringing us up and, um, and, and, and giving us a healthy life. Um, and, and so, you know, people resonate with that right away. So fascinating. Raji, what does she think about like planting seedlings or planting new trees versus old growth? Uh, planting new seedlings is something, but it's not a one-to-one -one solution for clear cutting. These old forests, they've been, you know, they're like a thousand years old, 2000. Some of them haven't been disturbed for 10,000 years. And in that long period of time of development, they've socked away, you know, huge amounts of carbon in the soil, um, in the tree trunks as well. And when you clear cut, first of all, like that above ground part of the of the carbon is converted into products, which generally about only about, you know, a very small portion actually ends up in long term storage, most of it is 65% is almost immediately goes to the atmosphere, because it's converted to toilet paper and paper that are easily decomposed. And then below ground, that opening up of those, in those, you know, clear cuts, warms up the soil, the water table rises up and decomposition starts to accelerate. And also in the process of logging, we lose a lot, what we found in our projects, the mother tree project, a lot of the carbon is lost from the forest floor. And so we're actually like immediately when we log, we, we lose this massive amount of carbon that's stored in these old growth forests. These little seedlings that we plant in their place, they, you know, it takes decades to even get back to a neutral level to, you know, to where it's not being a carbon source anymore. And then it'll take another, you know, decades, if not centuries to build it back up again, to be the same sink strength as that old growth forest was to start. We don't have that kind of time, right? Climate change is on a, it's, it's like a runaway train and we don't have time. We don't have to recover like that for those seedlings to recover to what an old growth forest was like before. Wow, that is fascinating. Raji, thanks so much for telling us about it this morning. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Interesting story out this morning about the Surrey Police Service. They're saying they are not putting some of their new hires through a polygraph test. And not everybody thinks that that's a good idea. Joining us now for more on this is our CKW Global News Senior Reporter, Janet Brown. Good morning, Janet. 
Good morning, Simi. Yeah, uh, along this road to developing the Surrey Police Service, lots of bumps up and down. And the latest story is uh, to find out that the new hires not being put through a polygraph test are senior police officers being hired by the Surrey Police Service. But let's point out, Simi, new recruits who have never been in policing are still being put through the polygraph. Surrey Police Service Deputy Chief Jennifer Highland, I reached out to her, asked her a few questions. She says, those not having to take the polygraphs are fully operational police officers, mainly coming from other police agencies in Canada who already have valid security clearances. And here is more of what she has to say. Yeah, so briefly, right now who we're hiring are currently current police officers fully operationally engaged in other police services across Canada with valid, effective security clearances to fully do their job. And part of their, um, so they're fully security cleared with police agencies across the country, including the RCMP and VPD and Delta. Um, many of those police officers, as part of becoming police officers, have already gone through polygraphs. Not all of them, because uh, there were many years where the RCMP never did pre-employment polygraphs. So um, organizations across the country have uh, changed their position over time on to use polygraph or not use polygraph. But currently, who we are hiring are all fully valid, qualified, security-cleared police officers and part of their process to become SPS employees is multiple different interviews, a rigorous background check. And as part of their background check, they have to supply references from other fully qualified current police officers operating with security clearances as well. And actually in the province of Ontario, it's actually contrary for the entire province under their Employment Standards Act to do polygraphs for most police officers and agencies in Ontario. Um, But the RCMP and I believe CSIS still do that. So it is when it comes to experienced police officers, depending on the process, the individual, uh, the background that they've done and how well known they are. So the majority of our police officers that are coming over to us are from within the province of B.C., So in addition to actually doing their backgrounds and interviewing other experienced police officers, uh, doing file reviews on any of their backgrounds, uh, multiple levels of interviews, um, there's nothing that precludes us from deciding if we wanted to do a polygraph. We are doing polygraphs for all of our brand new recruits. So put uh, individuals who apply to be a police officer who have never been in policing before and the majority of their background and references will not be active police officers. All of those, that standard of uh, polygraphing new recruits, the SPS will be doing that. We're just not currently um, hiring anybody in that new recruit process because we don't intend to have new recruits going to the JI until January of 2022. So all of our current active process are active in, uh, police officers from across the province that have had extensive uh, background interviews and have to have security clearances um, effective within their current police uh, service right now. Okay, so Janet, let me ask you, she went to a lot of trouble there to point out that, you know, what the case is in Ontario, but this is BC, and what is the case for police forces here? Right, that's the question, Simi. Is this standard practice? So I reached out to former West Vancouver Police Chief and former Solicitor General Kashid, and he says he sees a problem with this. Here's more of what he has to say. 
Well, we certainly understand that at the recruit level where the people, the men and women are first entering policing, uh, you would do a polygraph. And it seems that they're consistent with that practice across North America. Where they're inconsistent with their practice and their hiring is when you're hiring experienced officers, that being exempt officers at the constable level. Most police departments that I'm familiar with will still polygraph those men and women that are applying for the department. And that, as I say, is a consistent practice across North America for these experienced officers coming over as constables into new police agencies. We've conducted it before. Uh, we conducted it in West Van when I was a chief. We conducted it in Vancouver when we were hiring these experienced officers at that level. What you find here is there may be some issues as to the reason why he or she is leaving their particular organization to come over to Syria. You don't necessarily pick that up during a background investigation on the individual. More than likely, you will pick it up during some type of polygraphist examination of that person. And when I was a detective in our recruiting section, I hired both exempt candidates and I hired recruit candidates. And often during the process, we would identify areas that needed to be explored in many of those candidates, including experience officers, where we would have to delve into that to either confirm the information or, or at least satisfy ourselves that the information will not impact on their particular career. I think it's, it's cognizant. I think it's pragmatic that we uh, polygraph any new people coming into policing, whether from an experienced background or a new recruit entering the police academy. Now, there are certain police departments that will even poly their police chief. That's very, very rare, but I have seen that take place. Usually there's some other testing, integrity testing, that is giving to those executives that they are hiring. Okay, Janet, that is so interesting because to me, I would still be very curious about why a senior officer is leaving job security and potentially a pension and all that behind. Like, wouldn't you have questions about that? Well, and that's the point Kashid is making. And, you know, people people are people. Let's face it. Things can change. When they were initially hired by their first p- police department, wherever it is that they were working, and then move over to another one, things can change. Things happen in people's lives. But that's the policy as it stands right now. I also, Simi, reached out to a couple of other police agencies around Metro. The Vancouver Police Department says it puts all new hires, whether they're experienced or new recruits, through a polygraph test. And also Metro Vancouver Transit Police, they also do the same. But as Deputy Chief Highland pointed out in New Westminster, they don't do that. So it seems like a really floating standard here. And as she also pointed out, they don't do them at all in Ontario because of the under the act in Ontario. So it's interesting how there's uh, variations, you know, in BC and, and right across the country as well. It certainly is. Okay. And, you know, the thing is, to be fair here about the story, the story police service too, they've had, there's been some questions about some of the people that they've hired right at the higher levels. Uh, there have, and our listeners know those stories, and I've reported on them in, in previous weeks and months. And, um, yeah, some, some put in an application and then withdrew it. Uh, there was another member 
who had a background of uh, drinking and driving, and, and he uh, kept his name forward to be part of that force as well. So, yeah, I mean, as I say, nobody's perfect, um, and I don't think people expect people to be perfect, but we know that police officers are to be held to a higher standard than, quote-unquote, the rest of us. So perhaps right. a polygraph would, would weed out certain people, but this is the policy as it stands. And, and another question I put to Ms. Highland was, is this... Is this because you want to speed up the process when it comes to hiring? And and obviously, I think it, it would speed up the process. But as she says, too, that, you know, if they do have questions, they can always use the polygraph. It's not it's not a case of where they're not using it 100 percent of the time. If they do have questions, if issues come up, if they do have questions through the interview process, they can uh, put that individual yeah. through the polygraph test. So it doesn't mean they're not using it for right. experienced officers ever, ever, ever. Good yeah. point. Janet, thank you so much for that. Anytime. Thank you. So